Welcome to Breaking Free Authentically, the podcast where we explore what redefining relationships looks like through a sex-positive lens. Let's kick shame and guilt to the curb and really start living a sexy, authentic life. I'm passionate about normalizing out-of-the-box ways of designing relationships. There's nothing quite like finding your tribe and experiencing the freedom of being completely yourself without judgment. I'm your host, Kareen Bedard, your sex-positive relationship designer, and I'm here to guide you in creating the relationship you desire, whether that is a more open one or simply a more empowered one. Join me every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time to enjoy the newest episode. Good morning, my beautiful listeners. I'm so happy to be back again with you for episode 27 of Breaking Free Authentically. Today is going to be a really informative conversation with Dr. Jolie Hamilton. Dr. Jolie Hamilton is the relationship coach for couples who color outside the lines. She is a research psychologist, TEDx speaker, best-selling author, and ASECT certified sex educator. Jolie also co-hosts the Playing With Fire podcast with her anchor partner, Ken. Jolie's been featured in the New York Times, Vogue, NPR, and The Atlantic. She spent the past two decades studying and reimagining what love can be if we open our imaginations to possibility. Jolie helps people create non-monogamous partnerships that are custom-built for their authentic selves. No more shrinking, pretending, or hiding required. Well, I think you can see from that description right there why I have her on the show today. We really have aligned views and goals about what we think is important in life and what we want to help people with. So I'm super excited to have this conversation with her. We talk about jealousy today, the green-eyed monster. Taming that green-eyed monster is not always easy. We've also been taught that we shouldn't even be dealing with the green-eyed monster, aka jealousy. And so there's a lot of beliefs that we have about it. On the other hand, we've also been programmed to think that jealousy also equals love. So it's kind of a fucked up thinking. It's a mind fuck, really, is what it is. Because here we are taught that if we don't have any jealousy in our relationship, we don't love our partner enough. But then we're also taught that if we have jealousy in non-monogamous relationships, that there's something wrong with us and that we're not compersive enough and all this stuff. So we're going to unpack a lot of that because it's just untrue. And I think that we just need to have a clearer perspective on what jealousy actually is, how to deal with it, how it can be used positively in our lives, in our relationships, and sometimes just understanding something and how it works and how it can consume us or how it can make us struggle is half the battle of of being able to deal with it. At the beginning, I talked about when I introduced her, I said that we need qualitative evidence. And so I was really glad that she's a researcher. And I actually didn't mean qualitative. I meant quantitative. And so she will correct me on that. But it's important to realize that 
we need more than just facts about numbers of jealousy and how many people struggle with jealousy. That's important to know as well, but we need to know why are people struggling with jealousy and why is it consuming us or why do we have such trouble letting go of things? And really, I'd like to propose that it's it's from our mono mindset that we have been programmed to believe. We have this mono mindset and it controls how we are programmed to view relationships, what trajectory we think is the right one for having a successful relationship. And that includes everything about relating skills, what we expect from our partners, right down to sexuality, what we expect from ourselves, the shame behind sexuality as a culture. All these things are so, so programmed into us and they affect us in a negative way. And when I say that, I don't mean that everyone needs to be non-monogamous. I just mean that we need to be aware of what the mono mindset is that we have been programmed into so that we can actually be able to unpack it and recognize that that's not our fault that we think that way. It's been programmed into us and we do have choices and we can make a different decision if we want and we can color outside the lines as Dr. Jolie says and we can design the relationships of our choice and we're allowed to go against the grain if that's what we want to do. And if we want to choose monogamy, beautiful, but then we can do it intentionally and with healthy mindsets and healthy relating skills and the ability to put healthy expectations on ourselves and on our partners about relationships. The reason I talk about this is because I am so passionate about that. And we need to understand sort of all the things that we're working with in relationships. I am super excited to be launching next month my Breaking Free from Monogamy program. And it is going to be really tackling this mono mindset and helping us break free from it so that we can have healthy relationships. So next week's podcast, we'll have more information about that. And we will be talking with my co-creator of this program. And I'm so very excited to introduce her. And it's just going to be incredible. So I want you all to be a part of it. I love you all. And let's talk about jealousy. Please visit our website at www.breakingfreeauthentically.com and subscribe to our mailing list so you never miss an episode. Be sure to leave a review on Podchaser by clicking the link at the top of the page. That would mean the world to me. Finally, I'd love for you to join Breaking Free Authentically, our private sex-positive relationship community on Facebook. All the links will be posted in the show notes. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to Breaking Free Authentically. Today we have a special guest called Dr. Jolie Hamilton, and I'm so grateful to have her here. She is a jealousy researcher. And so today we are going to talk a little bit about jealousy. And I think it's important to have some quantitative evidence when we talk about jealousy, because I think it's something we don't talk about enough. We just name it this green-eyed monster and it's the elephant in the room. Let's tame this elephant. I think we all shame ourselves for having jealousy, 
Um, but we all struggle with it at some point. It's normal. It's a healthy emotion. It's there to tell us something. So let's have a chat about that. Thank you for being here, Dr. Jolie. Thanks so much for having me. Conversations about jealousy can, in fact, be fun, even if jealousy is often a struggle for people. Mm-hmm. I agree. It's I like getting clarity on things. For me, that's always important. Like you can't work through something that you don't understand. Right. So right. I think, you know, it's it's like um, sex in a marriage. I always say it's this thing that most quote-unquote vanilla or monogamous marriages are, it's the gauge of the health of a relationship, yet it's the thing you can't talk about. So there's like no education about it. And here we are struggling through and we think that our marriage is a failure because we're having trouble with the sex, but really that's not, that's not the issues. Right. And so, um, I think if we talk about jealousy, we can really get some clarity and it won't be so scary. So let's get started. So what do you do and how does this, what do you do as a researcher researching jealousy? I mean, yeah, well, so you, when you opened up, you, you mentioned that we need quantitative data and we do, and there is some quantitative data out there on jealousy. I am a qualitative researcher. So, um, I research the lived experience of jealousy. I go deeply into the idiosyncratic stories of people's jealousy. And then from those, I, I don't concern myself so much with, uh, what are exactly the numbers of jealousy? I take care of that in literature reviews, but that is not my concern. My concern. I think is I that used we... the wrong word because I'm with ah, you on there we that. Go. So I said quantitative, didn't I? And yeah. I meant to say qualitative. So thank you for catching that and correcting that because yes, that I think is important, especially with this. Yes. Yeah, it's just a different way of looking at the experience, right? So both quantitative and qualitative um, work is important, mm-hmm. and yet. When we have quantitative work, that can tell us a lot about the prevalence of Mm -hmm. jealousy and would definitely speak to the fact that jealousy is incredibly common, but it doesn't tell us much about what we should do with it because it doesn't help us understand it as it's deeply felt by the human. And so my work is in collecting stories of people's experiences with jealousy, both in monogamous individuals and polyamorous individuals. Mm -hmm. and. When I'm doing my work, what I'm usually looking for is not so much um, someone's story of how they've dealt with it perfectly, but instead, what happens when jealousy arises, um, what the stories, what the stories are that they have made out of their jealousy, what it means to them. And then from there, I draw some conclusions across the data that help me understand not only what an individual might do, but what we might do with jealousy in the clinical setting and what it's for, why jealousy is there at all and what maybe it's good for that we're overlooking. Yeah, I love that. I love that. So can you share some some of the stories that might come up that we might be able to relate to? Um, let's start with the story, like in a monogamous situation, so we can have a little bit of comparison if that's all right. Sure. Yeah. Well, so in my, in my data collection with monogamous individuals, one of the stories that stands out to me is it's not so much the story. It's how the story was presented. Um, it was a story that was shared 
about um, someone who had had was a serial monogamist, which is typical the most typical way that monogamy works um, in modern day life, which means that we're having one partner at a time over the course of lives. You might have dozens of partners. Mm-hmm. This person was relaying stories of of having five or six partners over the course. And this was, um, their description was five or six. She wasn't entirely sure how she would quantify one of them. And jealousy for her felt entirely normal, entirely justified. So she had a lot of really interesting things to say about jealousy. But the most important aspect to me was that she assumed that I would agree with her. She had a presumption that that there was a, a typical and average amount of jealousy that people have and that there was a typical and average way people respond to it. And in, in working deeply to normalize for herself, which is important, she had a lot of phrases in her language that made it clear that she didn't understand the perspective that her lovers were taking in her story. Mm -hmm. She imagined that there was a right and healthy way to work with jealousy and a right and healthy amount of jealousy. And why this stands out to me is because this, I I hear this all the time. So I do my studies and then I also collect stories of jealousy in my regular day-to-day world and in my coaching practice. When you're going to work in the non-monogamy field, you're going to hear stories of jealousy. And so when I hear someone pretty sure that they understand exactly what jealousy is, what it's for, and how other people should respond when jealousy shows up keyword being there, how other people should respond. I'm always very soft and tender to the fact that they haven't really allowed themselves to be with the complexity that jealousy really is. Yeah. So what, what was her, um, her view of jealousy then? Well, like many monogamous, um, participants and, um, storytellers that I've heard, her imagination was that jealousy was fixed, that it was that that you needed to have it, that there needed to be a healthy amount, but that too much shouldn't be pointed at her. So there was a bit of a double standard um, Mm -hmm. in the story, right? She knew that she could trust herself. She was monogamous. She knew she could trust herself to be around friends who she had dated previously or was attracted to and not act outside of her relationship commitment. She did not feel that she could trust other people that she was interacting with, her lovers, her partners. And this comes up a lot, right? People imagine themselves. It's a it's a very well-documented psychological <laughs> bias that we imagine that we are trustworthy and we are suspicious of others. The trouble with jealousy is often it throws us into really, really old trauma triggers or really, Mm. really old narratives because jealousy shows up as young as five and six months old. Jealousy is evolutionarily, um, it is there for a reason. And so she didn't understand that while it is there for a reason, it doesn't wind up behaving the same way and not everyone Mm. behaves the same way. And so she was finding herself ending relationship after relationship based on the fact that the person was not displaying the right um, relationship to their jealousy, right? Mm-hmm. She was pretty sure that they should have, well, what I've heard Effie Blue, um, an amazing coach, uh, she described as the Goldilocks amount of jealousy. <laughs> and it, and this is what comes up. The trouble is there is no Goldilocks amount across the board. There really is no 
objective amount of jealousy that's correct. What there is, is a a healthy relationship to the level of jealousy that's being present presented in your life. Right? right. Because it's not going to be consistent. But when we expect our partners to show up and behave when they are exposed to jealousy, behave exactly the way we do, mm-hmm. we are usually sadly quite disappointed. Right. And this definitely happened for her over and over again. And would you say, like, I find that the model of monogamy that we've been taught, like, especially sort of the this cultural societal version of relationships and music and everything, is that if jealousy is not present, they don't actually really love you. <laughs> that's it. So that's that's the sweet spot. So Dr. Maya Angelou has, I think, the best quote on this ever. She said, jealousy in love is like salt in food. Mm. you want a dash of it to enhance the savor, but too much spoils the dish. Mm -hmm. So there is this sort of cultural normative view that jealousy is proof of love. And yet it's paradoxical because also if you're too jealous, then your relationship isn't strong or you don't have trust, right? So this is where it gets really tricky because everybody's jealousy meter is different. And everybody's, at least in my research, what I found is everybody's assessment of what qualifies as a jealous act is Mm. different, right? And many of us do not have really well thought out, explicit, clearly communicated relationship agreements. So oftentimes we are making an assessment of whether something qualifies as a jealousy inducing act based on something that was never discussed. And that's not just monogamy. I work with non-monogamous people all day, every day, and they Mm -hmm. struggle with this too. Mm -hmm. Moving stuff from implicit expectation to explicit agreement is hard work. And most people don't have strategic processes for doing this. That's exactly what my work revolves around. But it's normal not to have those because that's not how we were taught relationships should work. Mm -hmm. The norms tell us, like all those stories and songs you were just talking about, they tell us that we can just expect love to either work or be horrifying. Mm-hmm. And there's not a lot about how what we might do to make them work or be less horrifying. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's move on to the non-monogamy side of things. And what are some of the, the ways you see in the stories, the mono- uh, jealousy show up there? Because I know that they do. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, one of the one of the first things right off the bat is just to establish that jealousy is it's an emotion, right? So obviously it is normal. There's nothing, there's nothing pathological about jealousy. And when I'm interviewing people about jealousy, most people, both monogamous and polyamorous, have been able to clearly identify that jealousy is normal. They don't feel that it's inherently problematic. Mm-hmm. However, there is a difference when I'm talking to polyamorous individuals, frequently they have talked about it more. Mm-hmm. So they have more fully formed ideas around what jealousy is and what it's for and what how it should be acted on or not acted on or worked with in relationship. However, Mm-hmm. There are also a lot of presumptions around jealousy. There's a lot of misunderstanding about what jealousy is. And some of that misunderstanding from my perspective comes from the fact that we we don't agree. We actually don't agree on what the what jealousy is for, even though we know we know that what its purpose is in an infant, but we don't necessarily agree on what it's for once we start loving. And so when I'm talking to non-monogamous people who have consciously made the decision 
to open the door to Mm -hmm. multiple partners, they've had to make sense out of this. They've Mm -hmm. had to figure out, so what am I going to do? And a lot of people struggle with it because they want it to just not happen or not be a problem. Mm -hmm. And so the longer someone has been practicing, Mm tended to result in stories of more nuanced ways of dealing with and understanding jealousy. The fresher someone was into the paradigm of polyamory, the the more monogamous hangover there was. Yeah. And some people really feel strongly that if jealousy is present, that's not the right non-monogamous connection for them. Like jealousy mm-hmm. is the indicator for them mm-hmm. that nope, this is not the right connection because it's it's triggering all of my childhood stuff or it's triggering my mm-hmm. trauma wounds. And not everybody is in their relationships to do their trauma work. And that's for them to decide. They get to decide that. So this is really a very personal decision. And I like to be really clear. There is no perfect poly way to behave when it comes to jealousy. And if anybody's telling you there is, um, sorry, we don't have an authority body. Nobody's going to stamp your card. I I feel like, I feel like there's such a shame culture around jealousy in the polyamory world. And that breaks my heart. I I mean, I feel like there's a lot of like very strong poly rules and, and it's like, they forget about the human being. (laughs) They forget that we're human and that we have time constraints and that we have um, multiple, we're multifaceted and we have other things to juggle and children and reality, you know, like finances, all these kinds of things. And people just kind of make blanket statements and I'm finding it so much in the poly groups on Facebook and stuff. It's just people just come like and attack someone when they say anything or have a question. I'm like, hold up. We are supposed to be about love. And um, what I find is a lot of shame if you're not feeling compersion and you're having any kind of jealousy that you're wrong, 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 or get away from them. And that's just wrong. And, you know, run. And I think, where's our compassion? Like, what can we talk about? How do we deal with that jealousy? Because it's going to come up. So is it coming up as a controlling thing? Like someone trying to control you so they don't feel that jealousy? Or is it just simply that they are expressing a feeling and they're not trying to control you? But they're, do you know what I mean? Like, like, let's talk about how do we, how do we deal with this and what can it look like to have like healthy conversations about jealousy within a relationship? Yeah. Well, I think it would be good to start, like, let's, let's take it back just a notch and say, what is jealousy actually? Let's do that. Because if if we're going to, if we're going to try to prescribe a better way to work with it, then let's be clear what we're talking about. Jealousy is always a triangle. Jealousy is a triangle of me, my beloved. The beloved can be anyone. This does not have to be just romantic connection. Anyone who I have a valued relationship with. And the third point on the triangle, a perceived interrupter. The perceived interrupter is a person though. And this is important because many times people confuse jealousy with envy. Envy is about a dyad. Envy is me and I, my longing to be like someone else is or have what they have. And when we conflate these two terms, we actually, we just lose some of our language. Language is wonderful. Mm-hmm. It helps us communicate with each other. So yay. Um, I sort these out because I want to remind people that jealousy is this 
deeply felt sense that we will lose something or someone we care about this or this something, this relationship that we care so much about through the interference of an interrupter. When jealousy pops up, though, it is not it's not a primal emotion. It's not a core emotion. It is a complex emotion. Jealousy is made of fear. Obviously, it's fear that something will be lost, but also Mm -hmm. anger, sadness, anticipatory grief, shame, and envy. All of these and, and more can be found inside of jealousy. So here's where some of the understanding misunderstandings happen. Your jealousy will have a unique flavor. Your jealousy may have a unique flavor in a particular context, in a particular relationship. And so let's just put this into a a concrete example. If I am experiencing deep jealousy over a new partner that my anchor partner has brought into our lives, and I am absolutely raging with anger. I am furious to the point where I am out there in the gym, hitting the heavy bag, constantly trying to manage my rage. I am furious. And under that fury, I might find, oh, there's also a lot of unexpressed grief that is not even grief that's happened. So I call that anticipatory grief. There's a lot of fear. But my sadness is like, I'm nowhere in touch with it. Mine is like this big anger flavored jealousy. Now imagine a little time goes by. I learn how to ma- manage that. And my partner figures out how to manage it. And we we put some protocol in place that seems like it's helping. And then I introduce a partner into my life that feels like a threat to my, my anchor bond. And my partner's jealousy comes up, but he withdraws and he's sad mm. and he can't seem to get out of his depression. And he is struggling to even have communication with me, not out of lack of want, but the words won't come up. And he's deep in a shame spiral. And he's also so envious because the person I'm partnered with, he also, he starts noticing, oh my God, I kind of even have a crush on him. Mm. I kind of like, I don't know whether I want him or I want to be him, but now I'm really tangled up because I've got envy locked inside my jealousy. And so here's the problem. These two people, myself and my anchor partner in this case, we may not even understand and recognize that our partners are having the same jealous experience because they look and feel and taste and talk so differently. So we might not call this what it is, jealousy. We might instead say, no, I'm just angry. And I say, that's fine. You you may be angry, but if we're missing the fact that it's because I'm afraid of my connection being broken, then frequently what happens is we turn all of our attention to the third, to the other, to the perceived interrupter, and we want to do away with them for some reason. We want to get rid of them, right? They're the problem. And this is where we miss the opportunity because the opportunity is in renegotiating or reconnecting or whatever it takes to come back into healthy alignment with our partner who we care so much about. When we miss this, I find that frequently it is because we just don't understand each other's jealousy. It comes out in these different flavors and we just sort of miss the boat. Or we just don't want to deal with that. My partner may be totally unwilling to deal with my rageful anger. I might be completely at my wit's end dealing with his depressive sadness. 
And so we may feel like we just don't even know what, where to begin because it, it's not in our wheelhouse. It doesn't make sense. It's not legible to us. Mm-hmm. And this is where it becomes really, really important to understand jealousy's complexity. Because if we want to break away from the habits that, yes, I agree, happen in some non-monogamy groups, some of them are incredibly judgmental about jealousy. And they put compersion on a pedestal where it does not belong. That's not a healthy place to put any emotion. Mm-hmm. When that happens, often we turn out to our community and, and we get this advice that tells us, well, if jealousy is present at all, now we have this other piece that comes in. Oh my God, now we have another problem. Mm-hmm. When really what needs to happen is a deep understanding of how jealousy comes up in us, what it's triggering, and then what we need. And I identified a five-step framework that people who were successfully navigating jealousy all had in common. Whereas people who were less successfully navigating jealousy were stumbling over some of these, these particular steps. And it's not like people had these frameworks. They, they appeared out of Mm -hmm. the data, like, oh, these are the things that they have in common. It's not actually, it's not that it's hard to spot the healthy pattern but it's also not easy to do because mm-hmm. jealousy is overwhelming and right. it's completely banal. That's how we know jealousy is archetypal. Jealousy is both overwhelming and completely mundane at the same time. Hmm. So true. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I'm just writing some notes here because there's some good juicy stuff in here. Um. Yeah. So I like that. The flavor of jealousy, like different flavors and, and how, so I've, I talk about like love languages, obviously Mm -hmm. there's love languages and then, um, there's fight languages. People talk about fight languages now. And so those look different. And so we could almost say jealousy has its own languages too, right? Like they show up differently in terms of, you know, some might be in enraged and some might be sad and some might be, you know, wanting to hide. And, and I think like, like our natural tendency is to protect ourselves from feeling badly. Right. So I find a lot of couples will run to like rules about jealousy, right? Okay. Well, I'm going to slap this rule down and say, okay, you can't do this anymore because that makes me feel uncomfortable. So how would you, how would you guide someone through that? No, let's not yeah. slap a rule on there. Let's figure this out. Well, I mean, I'm always interested when people use rules because what I want to know is what are you trying to accomplish? Mm-hmm. Because generally speaking, the rule isn't going to accomplish the whole picture. So, I, I mean, I wish that it were that simple. Right. I love, I love logical thought. That sounds great <laughs> in theory. But in action, when we experience jealousy, when jealousy comes up, in us, the most common reaction is to look at the behavior that's happening, the action, the something that we see out there, point our fingers outwards, say, you stop doing that so that I will stop feeling this. I cannot mm-hmm. bear this feeling. Yeah. It actually divests us of our power because the, the first source of power we have is to find our feet again and say, wait, this jealousy, the jealousy itself is my emotion. Mm-hmm. I am experiencing it. And so my first steps need to be about me, about what I'm experiencing and how I take care of myself when I'm having big feelings. And when we slap a rule on something, generally speaking, 
we haven't given ourselves a chance to really mm-hmm. fully feel through that. And it's actually worse because now the rule is supposed to protect us. So now when jealousy comes up again, we're it's like getting slapped in the other direction. Like, mm-hmm. wait, no, but the, the rule was supposed to protect me. Exactly. Now, that's not to say that you shouldn't be asking your partner for things in regards to jealousy. Because when people show up in my world, when they're showing up with jealousy, they absolutely need assurance from their partner. Mm -hmm. They need to understand the relationship they're actually in. They need to understand what's going on. And often there are transparency issues going on too. Mm -hmm. And so all of these things add into it. So it's not like there aren't things and conversations you'll need to have with your partner or partners, but it starts, it starts within the very first step in the framework is you got to notice that you're jealous at all. You have to notice it. The first clue is going to come from your embodied experience and you have to be able to notice that. Mm-hmm. The ability to notice jealousy early is really, really important because everybody has their window of tolerance, right? So your your, your body exists. It has a nervous system. Your nervous system is the only way you can interface with information from the world. That's it. That's all you've got. Like that mm-hmm. is your sensory detector. And so as stimulus comes in, in all these different forms, you have this window of tolerance. And if the stimulus keeps you in that window of tolerance, like you're fine. You feel like, yeah, I might be having a a better or worse time. I might be enjoying things better or worse. Yeah, sure. And at at sometimes we pass out of that window of tolerance. We're in hyper arousal or we drop down to hypo arousal. Mm -hmm. And in those times, it's just as you're starting to drop out of your window of tolerance, like when you're crossing that boundary, if you, the sooner you can notice that jealousy is happening, the mm-hmm. easier it will be to find homeostasis again. Right. The easier it will be. So we have to know what our signals are. So in my studies, the words that have come up from people are when jealousy comes up, I feel tight, constricted, twisted, my stomach hurts. I feel like I can't breathe. My throat's clenching. I have tingles. I feel heat. My hands are hot. My ears are prickling. There are a lot of phrases people use to describe the somatic symptoms of their jealousy. Mm -hmm. And once they can do that, now they can identify jealousy sooner. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make it hurt less. If jealousy hurts for you, I like get that. And noticing it can help you then take the next steps. Once you've noticed a somatic symptom, you have the opportunity to interact with your own nervous system and to Mm self-soothe rather than allow it to continue to go wildly out of bounds. Sometimes it will. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it will. It will. Sometimes it will overwhelm you. Mm -hmm. And there are many, many other resources I would want to put in place for that. But If you can notice the symptoms of jealousy in yourself, and if you can communicate with about those, then you can also ask for support around them. So get to know your own familiar sensations of jealousy. That's great. So you said that's the first part of the framework. So what would the second part be? So the second step is really what we've been talking about all along. Just being able to name that this Mm -hmm. is jealousy. And then name the constituent emotions. What's going on in there? So I place jealousy in a neutral position. Um, Jealousy itself is neutral, but it's going to have all these other emotions in it. 
And so I want to get to know that jealousy before I decide whether it's good or bad. Because remember, if jealousy is there to keep us connected to someone or to give us information that we care about someone, it's pretty easy to find what it's good for, actually. And Mm -hmm. we have the opportunity then to get to know the jealousy. So if I can tell, oh, I'm jealous and I am terrified and I'm going into total shutdown, like I'm going to go into meltdown shutdown really soon, that's an opportunity. When I'm trying to name the emotions of jealousy, though, I'm already in threat. So. It's the noticing to naming stage that often is trickiest for people because from noticing to naming, if I notice the symptoms, if I'm in threat, which we've already established, jealousy is about a threat to my love bond. Once you're in threat, you no longer have access to your prefrontal cortex. (laughs) You are now acting from your limbic system. And so now you have fewer resources. So then it gets really hard to name and sort your imagination, Mm. sort your jealousy out, right? So now- this can be sticky. We may need support in place. And that's why I say I turn to, I use neurosomatic intelligence to re-regulate, but there are so many ways, whatever Mm -hmm. your self-regulation tools are, use Mm -hmm. those and then reach toward naming and understanding. And when I'm saying naming, I mean, for yourself, you might journal about it. You might name the jealousy, you might name it to a friend. And can you have a conversation with your partner about it? Because another big difference in my studies is Monogamous people, even if they did talk about jealousy with their partners, it wasn't with the same regularity. It tends mm-hmm. not to come up as much because monogamy is supposed to protect you from it. Right. And use great big air quotes there. <laughs> monogamy doesn't protect anyone from jealousy. Nothing can protect you from an emotion if you, it, stuff happens. But because we're, you're not opening the door to other people, it can be hard to imagine that jealousy is even present. Right. So just being able to have a conversation with your partner about jealousy is a, that's a game changer. So no matter what your relationship structure is, normalizing the conversation around jealousy and destigmatizing it, take taking the shame off and saying jealousy's here and at the same time I am 100% always responsible for my thoughts, behaviors and actions like that my communication around jealousy, my behaviors around jealousy, my actions, I'm responsible for what I do when jealousy shows up. Mm -hmm. This is where things often go off the rails because once you're in that threat state, many people resort to behaviors that aren't just not socially acceptable, right? And jealousy for that matter has been used as an excuse for violence since time immemorial. Mm -hmm. So we can't really talk about jealousy without noticing that, yeah, even now, recent studies have shown somewhere around two-thirds of domestic violence cases have a, an indication that jealousy was one of the, the presenting factors in this situation. Mm-hmm. So we have to deal with the reality that even though jealousy itself is neutral, we are not dealing with it well. And I don't think any amount of any any relationship structure at all, I don't think any amount of saying you shouldn't feel that mm-hmm. is going to help us deal with the ramifications of people behaving badly when when jealousy shows up. So well, it just adds to the shame cycle, right? Right. Yeah. It's not helpful. Yeah. Don't think about that. Okay. Oh, that's all I'm thinking about, right? Right. So right, right. and then we just and then you'll start to hide shame or hide jealousy, and then you'll pretend it's not there, and then it'll rear its ugly head way worse because you haven't acknowledged it to yourself. You've buried it, and it just comes out. That's why it's called the green-eyed monster because I think sometimes 
we let it get so far thinking like, we don't have a right to it. We don't have a right to investigate it. We don't have a right to think about it. Right. Or flip that. Many yeah. people believe that when jealousy comes up, I have a right to completely invade your being. Yes. I have a right to snoop. Yeah. I have a right to monitor. I have a right to to harangue you. I have a right to keep you up all night and ask you questions. I have a right to control your behavior, to to watch you. Right. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. that goes both directions, right? This is why working with jealousy is such an important and sensitive area because mm-hmm. There is no one recipe, like do this. The framework is helpful for people to understand, like walk through this. But if jealousy is present, then we have to be really aware of the fact that monitoring behaviors may be present. Mate guarding may be present. Um, Even even in non-monogamous structures, all of these things happen still, Mm -hmm. right? And for that matter, what conversations are we having in our larger community? Because that's actually the place where I think we can make the biggest difference. You mentioned Mm -hmm. like large Facebook groups, large Facebook groups give people an anonymity in which they will say anything. Mm -hmm. They will say the most hurtful and uncompassionate things. Mm -hmm. And so this is a place where everybody could choose to behave differently. There is no need to shame people about feeling jealousy. There's also no need to go vent our jealousy to a community where we know we'll get that backup of, uh, you know, my partner's jealous. And and now I've said this in a place where I know my partner will be shamed, right? There's so many ways that we can weaponize the internet in our relationships that pay attention to what we're using. So when I think about community change, I think, Let's have these conversations where we destigmatize jealousy Mm -hmm. and let's also simultaneously have conversations where we remember that jealousy was there for a reason. And when people are triggered, they are cast back into a pre-verbal level of threat. Yeah. So if they're acting like toddlers, that's why. And so we need to deal with the behavior and what do we do with these great big feelings? And one of the things we can do is as a community say, when we see jealousy acted out, we're going to talk about it. Mm-hmm. We're just going to talk about it. We're going to name it. We're going to talk about it. And we're going to talk about it in a way that offers the person support. Right. What, what's next? Because the other three steps are about like, let's get you, let's get this moving. Let's keep this jealousy moving rather than having it be stagnant and right. festering. So okay. the next, um, yeah, the next step is really important. I think it it can be handled individually and um, it can be handled in therapy and it can be handled in community. It's what's the story? What's the narration? You've got notice name and now it's narration. What's the story you're telling yourself about what jealousy means? Because what the, your story of jealousy's meaning is going to have a bigger impact on how jealousy works in your world than almost anything else. What you, because you give jealousy meaning and then your, your community co-creates jealousy's meaning with you. So people who are in my world. So I, I have a program where I work people from, from monogamy to whatever more they want Mm -hmm. in my world. Jealousy is, there is a, there is a zero tolerance for shaming people around jealousy. Mm -hmm. There's also a zero tolerance around violence and jealousy, right? So we have to work both sides of this. And when we're in communities, all kinds of communities, we need to remember that the meaning people have given jealousy comes from everywhere. It comes from 
every song, every rom-com, every <laughs> mythology. We wouldn't have literature and mythology. We wouldn't have, it's something like 80% of our great literature mythology has themes of jealousy threaded somewhere through it. So this is archetypal. It's huge. So we have to hold it with reverence mm-hmm. while also not allowing it to run the whole show. So in other words, it's not easy. Right. Wow. Yeah, it is. It is such a complex thing. And I love that you said that, like, what's the story? I mean, that's, that's what we get to ask of every emotion. Like if we have fear about something like, well, what's the story that's happening there for me? What do I think is going to happen? Yeah, exactly. What You know, and, and a lot of times it comes back to attachment wounds, right? Like that fear of abandonment, that fear of rejection. What if someone's better than me, you know, not feeling like I'm enough? Is it triggering all of that? And usually it's, it's one of those things in some way, shape or form. And it's like, you know, okay, well, is that actually going to happen? And I think personally as a partner, I, I could say, well, your jealousy is not my responsibility, which I've been told before. Um, and that feels very heartless to me, although it's true. It's true. That is my responsibility. Sort of. but, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but the, a caring partner and someone you want is going to be empathetic and caring about that feeling and, even, and recognize that just because you're feeling jealous doesn't mean that you're accusing them of something. And it's important how we communicate things that we communicate things in a safe way so that people don't feel like they're being attacked or blamed and so that they feel heard and seen um, without you necessarily taking it personally. So you could be like, oh, you're jealous. Again, we keep dealing with this. Well, there's a core issue that's being, you know, tapped into there that's being triggered. And so it's valid as a partner, it's kind and loving to go and find out like, what is it that's causing that fear to be so big for you? What happened? You know, like what, what brought this on in your world? Yeah. And, and still yet, I mean, not everybody wants to do that work. Mm. And this is, I find this to be a really important, I think this is an important point worth making. Many people want to explore um, expansive relational patterns, right? Like there's so many different ways to be non-monogamous. And frequently they they want it for themselves and they don't actually want to do the deep work that it will take to also embrace that for their partner. Mm-hmm. I see that all the time. Mm-hmm. And this is why we, one, have to get really creative about the relationship structures we're making, but also we need to be careful that just because we want something doesn't mean we feel prepared and willing to do the work to have it right now. So when I'm when I'm working with somebody and I notice that everything that's coming up for them leads, yeah, right back to deep personal work that they could choose to do, that doesn't mean they have to. Not everyone wants to or wants to right now, and that's okay. But it might be that a simpler relationship structure would be more suitable for you while that's true. It could be. And if it's not, then it might be that you have chosen a particularly rocky path for your own personal development and growth. That's okay too. I think of non-monogamy as an individuation path. So in the Jungian sense, I trained as a Jungian and archetypal psychologist. So 
I think of this as one way that we can really do our our deepest psychological work. Mm-hmm. But if you're not ready to do that and your partner's saying, well, I see that you have to do the work, you know, or if you're just saying like, I can't do this. So I don't want my partner to be out. I don't want them to be doing things that cause jealousy in me. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's time to take a, take a really close look at, is this the right time for you to be doing this exploration? And if it's not, then, okay, what's the next step then? Because I, I the number of times I've been working with somebody who clearly wants to return to something simpler. I won't even say monogamy, just something simpler. They want maybe want to de-escalate or simplify in some way, sometimes all the way back to monogamy. They forget that they get to take all the skills they learned with them and they could probably create something. I call it creative monogamy. They could probably create something that will work for them right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and jealousy might be the thing that triggers that, oh, you know what? I'm just for whatever reason, I'm not well-resourced enough right now to take this on. Often I see it happening when um, when people are just at a big other turning point in their life. You know, something's going on with their family or there's an illness or whatever. And they're like, you know what? This isn't the moment. This I don't the have the emotional energy to like, you know, to do to it. work through that. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious in that case. So let's say your partner is struggling to find the energy perhaps to do the internal work. Yeah. I mean, my thinking is, okay, so if we've agreed to do this together and this is, this is, this has been part of the agreement for a while and all of a sudden you're just not wanting to do the work as, as the partner to someone like that, I think it's important to recognize that that doesn't mean that you have to stop everything you're doing in order to appease them. But there is a there is a piece of like you get to decide where that's going to go and it may be that you can't continue on this journey together. It doesn't just mean that because you're partnered you you say, "Well, I guess I can't do this either." Right. It could mean that. I've seen it Yeah, I've seen it, it both mean- directions. Right. I've definitely seen that play out in in many ways. There are there are people who I've seen say, you know what, I, I, ha- I actually don't need this, um, this part of my life to be expansive. I don't need this to be my exploration mm-hmm. path enough to risk my partner's well-being right now. So yeah, this mm-hmm. isn't the time, and they just decide, yep, yeah, this isn't the time. I also saw people do that when, um, when they've gone through a major illness or when we mm-hmm. went through a pandemic, and many people were like, "Yeah, we're still in theory open to being open, but yeah. we're going to take a break because, right? There are lots of reasons why we might press pause and then go do the work of like, okay, so what does this mean for our relationship? Mm-hmm. And at the same time, yeah, I'm. I am thoroughly attached to the idea that um, success of relationships has nothing to do with longevity. It has to do with how gracefully we can transition between relational states. So I love that. I was talking about this on a podcast interview um, that's going to be the week before this one. (laughs) And, and we were talking about um, the transitions, like the, the flowing from one relationship to another or the, what was the word that we used? I can't remember. Um, not like flipping, but like, you know, like this, tra- this transition and, and that it's, it's a flow. It's just like a shift is shift shifting, mm-hmm. shifting into new things. Um, because there is this, 
this dialogue that we hear in our society, how, you know, when you break up, it's a failure. It's a failure. If your marriage breaks up, it's a failure. And I think for me, being a fundamentalist Christian, that was like the biggest thing for me to get over is that I wasn't quitting. I wasn't failing by choosing to get each of us out of sort of toxic um toxic relating because we were no longer on the same page right and and we allowed each other the freedom and we consciously uncoupled which to me is a win to me is such a powerful thing because we don't hate each other we gracefully shifted into a new a new paradigm or a new state and that is beautiful and i think I say this often that we celebrate, you know, someone staying together in such a horrible relationship and they're miserable, yet we celebrate them and, you know, spend huge amounts of money on this anniversary or whatever. And then we shame the people who didn't stay together because, well, you didn't tough it through or whatever. And I just think that's really sad. Right. And I mean, I I could really... I like to stand in the in-betweens a lot. Like I I definitely appreciate standing in in in-betweens. If someone else values longevity over all else, then they, then, then that's for them. And so when that's a couple, great. Awesome. I will in fact celebrate even your misery for 50 years, Mm -hmm. because if that was actually the goal, just like it is not my goal personally to have 8% body fat, but I'll celebrate somebody else. Yeah, exactly. But when it comes to the 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 ability to transition between relationship styles, I think really what has ha- not happened is the education. Yeah, the education that the world at large needs that this is a really healthy way. But I do think that there is effort being made in this direction. Yeah, where we're seeing it is in restructuring of families, um, blended families. We're seeing that people are embracing the idea that step parenting. And co-parenting can be really yummy and awesome and can be actually a, the best fit for everybody involved. We're and it's seeing not going to destroy dialogue. the kids. Like, right. I, and I, it's great. So I think like all other things, that's where we're starting to see the conversation change. Mm-hmm. And hopefully we will continue this conversation change. And over time, and I've noticed that many people can see the beauty in in my relationship being able to transition now, but they couldn't see it when the trauma yeah. was going on. They couldn't see it when we were overly dramatic and everything was a disaster. Yeah. We didn't know what we were yeah. doing when we exited right. and it was 2009 right. and we had no resources. And so from, here, <laughs> from this far out, people are like, oh, I see the value in that. I see yeah, yeah, why yeah. it happened. I wish it could have gone gentler for you. And some of those people have even mm-hmm. said to me, I wish we as your community could have been there for you in a different way mm-hmm. because we added to the misery mm-hmm. by imagining that this was a bad thing when in fact, the best thing was for each of you to go your separate ways and figure out how to right. raise your children together. Yeah. Right. So that's where I think the conversation will change. And I mean, my kids are all Gen Z and they're they're young adults at this point. There's seven of them. And I, I'm like, yeah, they're not going to do it the same way. So mm-hmm. baby steps, another yeah. couple generations. We'll yeah. see. <laughs> and and I, I'm with you on that. Like balance is so important to me. I hate this like polar opposites, you know, like, and I, I realize that's how change is created, right? You have to go to the polar opposite so that you can create a middle ground. I understand that that's kind of how change happens. However, it's so tough you know, to go from one opposite 
extreme to the other and feeling like you have to defend your choices because, you know, they they feel like they have the right to bash your child. Like if you want to stay in a relationship for longevity, exactly. I am like you, like, great. That's awesome. But like, that doesn't give you the right to shame me for not doing that and for feeling so sorry for me. And oh, my poor kids. When my kids were like, oh, I'm surprised you guys waited this long or you guys lasted this long. And we lasted like 20, 23 years, you know? So like, that was a long time and we made a really good go of it. And I'm really happy that we had each other. And and I grew up in ways that I never would have. And I don't think I'd be where I am today had I not been married to him. But it was clearly time to shift things and to move things. And I'm so thankful that I did because I feel like I can finally be my authentic self. I can be who I truly am and surround myself with the right people and I didn't understand how I was supposed to feel in my body around people. I didn't understand that there was a calm that you could feel when you're with your people and that you're not always feeling like this edge, like I have to be on eggshells or, or I have to please someone or I have to be different in order to be accepted. And I just think we weren't taught those things. We were just taught you hustle and you do what you have to do and, you know, sleep when I'm dead. <laughs> and <laughs> and you know you're not allowed to have a lot of joy on just regular things because living isn't really supposed to be about being happy it's about you know just slogging through and getting through it and i think we can have both <laughs> you know we can still slug through on some places you know don't just give up commit to the process but we can have joy in the process as well. And we can listen to our bodies when things really just aren't working anymore. And when you've done what you can, like sometimes there is no rectifying. It means someone has to change completely in order for it to fit. And I'm just not willing to do that anymore. I'm not willing to not be me. So, okay, we got to three. We got to what's the story? And then four. What would that so be? four is navigating your needs. So it's actually all the things we've been talking about. Whatever your, whatever you need does matter. And that doesn't necessarily mean that one person has to provide them for you. It doesn't mean that your partners are need-filling machines. Yes. And so figuring out how to get your needs met through a, a bunch of inputs, mm-hmm. um, not just other people, not just other lovers, but resourcing yourself and Actually, navigating your needs, I think, mostly comes down to, can you even identify your needs? Right. Can you differentiate them from your wants? And if you can do that, then you can most likely start moving in a direction to communicate your needs. This is a complex step because it goes on forever. It will never, ever, ever end. Navigating your needs is just what it takes to experience life <laughs> in a healthy way. But when it comes to jealousy, it's going to mean some pretty simple things, too. The number of people who I have spoken with who say that they don't feel like they can ask for reassurance when jealousy is up. So a conversation, a meta conversation about jealousy needs to be had there because we need to talk about how we talk about jealousy. Because if when jealousy comes up, I'm not feeling like I can ask for reassurance, then something's off in our relationship agreement. Something's Mm -hmm. off in the dialectic between the two of us. And so just starting right there 
Like, let's have a conversation about how we talk about jealousy. And that can happen before we actually talk about jealousy itself. I wonder, um, I talk a lot about safety, uh, communication Mm -hmm. is, is always said as the most important thing in a relationship, but I, I disagree in the sense that you can't have communication unless you feel connected and have safety in your relationship. So you could say all the right words and communicate everything and I'm communicating, but if you don't feel safe and if you don't feel connected, you're going to use things like blame to communicate. You're going to use unsafe things. So um, I didn't realize that I communicated in blame. Yeah. Because I thought I was just, and, and part of that was I didn't feel safe to share what was yeah. actually happening in me. So I ended up going on. Yeah. So I didn't felt, I didn't feel supported. So I, to share was always a fear that wasn't going to be accepted. So I think I would just hit the blame button first because I just needed to be real. I needed someone to realize that this was important to me and this was serious. And, and so you're doing something and I already, already in my mind had decided they weren't going to respond. So I had to blame them ahead of time. And I think it's important that we realize if we're not getting support, it might be because of that kind of language as well, that we're not creating safety for the listener. And sometimes I think we maybe brush that one under the rug, you know, like, um, if we feel like they're responsible to take away our jealous feelings, we're going to put the blame on them or we're going to say, you did this to me or you caused me to feel this way. But it's a very different thing to say, okay, I'm not making you responsible for this, but I am feeling so much anxiety in my body or I'm feeling so much of this and I'm feeling jealous feelings. I'm not putting the blame on you but man, I need a hug or man, I really need to be supported through this and be reassured that I, I, I'm just let my story, the story I'm making is not necessarily true and it's causing fear. Right. Or, and, and here's the thing, put a, put a question mark at the end of any of those. Like I need to hear a request. If you have a request of your partner, put a question mark at the end. So frequently when I'll have um, a client share with me, somebody who's struggling with this a lot, I will ask them to share with me some of their texts, a little screenshot of what they've sent as a text. Yeah, yeah. They never use question marks. I'll listen in session. I'll listen to how they're, they don't ask, they say, man, I need a hug. That's not a request. Mm. That's not a request. So we can really dig into our communication patterns. And generally speaking, we will find that we have set up a long-term communication pattern and habit for ourselves that doesn't serve our actual needs. And again, once again, I'm back to, yes, awesome. This is fantastic because this is in my wheelhouse. I get to fix it because it's my stuff. And then my partner can choose how they're responding to my change. And here's the thing. It's not enough to change it once. Mm -hmm. If you are not a question asker, if you are a statement maker, asking one question is not going to elicit a new pattern in your partner. You have to give that weeks and months, possibly years to form new patterns. So be patient with each other Mm -hmm. as you're changing. Yeah. No, that's a really good distinction because I think I I know for me what I struggled with what I struggled with is that if if I asked a question or if I didn't ask a question and they did the thing that meant more, right? Oh, I need a hug. If they gave me a hug that meant more, so there's some dialogue in there going on that but 
to be to ask the question how someone respond positively is is just as good if not better right like it, it just shows that yeah you're i mean brave enough yeah, to you're, ask. you're illustrating some really clear um, examples of how yeah. attachment trauma can show up later in life yeah I just looked at the time. We are we are out of time yeah. pretty much. Can we do the fifth thing and then we yeah. can wrap this up? The, the fifth is easy. So it's easy because it's aspirational. Um, it's compersion, nurture compersion. Mm. But here's the thing. Do not, under any circumstances, try to turn jealousy into compersion. Don't do it. You've officially heard this from a jealousy researcher. Please do not do this. <laughs> do not insist that your partner tries to turn jealousy into compersion. Do not blame them for that. And here's why. Jealousy is not the raw material of compersion. Compersion is joy for your partner's joy. The raw material of compersion is joy. So if you want more compersion in your relationships or in your experience of your relationships, we need to nurture joy. And Dr. Marie Tuin has done amazing research on the factors, the clearly identified factors in her research that demonstrate what can enhance and nurture, nurture compersion and what can be an obstacle to compersion. And I know from my research and jealousy that jealousy itself does not turn into compersion because we can feel jealous and compersive right alongside time. each other. <laughs> and we can be flipping back and forth, back and forth, back and forth between prefrontal cortex and amygdala response, back and forth, back and forth. And that's fine. But we do have an opportunity when we notice and name jealousy, we have an opportunity to start working with it in a way that opens up space for us then to also nurture compersion in our relationships mm -hmm. and compersion, that yummy, warm feeling that we get when our partner is getting what they want and they're happy and they're joyful. Mm -hmm. That takes more practice for some people than for others. And that's fine. But Boy, it is yummy and delicious when you can get it. Isn't it though? Oh, that's the best. I love it when I get to just feel the warm fuzzies for my partner's happiness. I'm like, oh, he gets to see her. I'm so excited for them, you know, or, oh, she really needs a hug. I'm so happy he gets to see her tonight or whatever. And, and I just love that. And I know that he, sometimes if he struggled with that, he's like, how do you do that? I was like, it's, it's just, you, you work at it and don't beat yourself up if that's not how you're feeling. Like, you know, like we just, we get to work at that and we don't get to beat each other up when it doesn't happen. It is so nice. And I think if we also keep in mind that when we're compersive towards each other, like there is no greater love that you can feel for your partner than when they're feeling compersion for you. Like, you're like, wow, why would I ever leave this? Cause you are just loving me for being autonomous and, and being myself and having joy that doesn't include you. Like how awesome is that? It's beautiful. So it Amazing. is a really cool thing to try to aspire to. Okay. We have to go because I'm sure you have lots to do today. You said you have a very big day. And I, I am. I'm packed today. <laughs> yes. So thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Jolie, is there anything that you'd like to leave us with to kind of wrap yeah. things up? Yeah. So what I would say is just if you're if you're struggling with jealousy, remember that jealousy itself is neutral. Mm -hmm. You get to choose how you work with it and how you respond to it. And if you want more information, I would love for you to go over to my website, JolieHamilton.com. My five-step jealousy framework is there. You can grab it by just getting my five top re relationship guides. And that way you'll just have them labeled for you. Mm -hmm. And you can start to think about these when you're doing your other deep personal work. Mm -hmm. Oh, 
Thank you so much. And I will put those um, links in the show notes for everyone. Thank you, Dr. Jolie, for your time. I so appreciate it. It was so lovely to see you again. Have a wonderful day. And thanks again. We'll talk soon. Well, I'm sure you can see why I wanted to have this conversation with Dr. Jolie. It was just so fascinating to look at it from that research perspective. And she just has so many beautiful nuggets. And I just want to remind us of a couple of them before we go. But um, thank you, Jolie, for this fascinating conversation. And um, a lot of this stuff I did know, and some of it is new, and it's always so exciting to learn new things and learn new perspectives and ways to deal with things. So I hope that you all can take these perspectives and apply them to your own lives. One of the big things that I took away was that quote, the jealousy in love is like a dash of salt. And so if you put too much salt, you'll spoil the meal. But just a little dash gives it flavor and it keeps it exciting. And so I love that we don't have to eliminate jealousy completely. It's kind of a beautiful perspective. And also just the the jealousy triangle. If you didn't catch that, go back and listen to it. And that jealousy is not envy. It's different than envy. And so it's important to keep that distinction as well. And then just the five-step process, just to summarize that again, is that she did say we all have a jealousy flavor. And what is your jealousy flavor? And it's important to be able to identify that. So step one is notice that you are jealous. and then. Step two is being able to name your jealousy and the emotions that come up with your jealousy flavor. You know, how does your your body feel? What are the things that show up for you? Number three, what is the story that you're telling yourself? And what's the story that our society and community is telling us? Because that also gives things meaning because we are meaning makers. Number four, Navigating your needs is really important that we can express our needs and we can understand our needs and not have shame about them. And number five, we want to nurture compersion. Compersion doesn't come out of jealousy, she talked about. Jealousy does not have the the building blocks for compersion. It comes from a very different place. So don't try to replace your jealousy with compersion. And I think that's really important. And I did talk about that a while back in my conversation with Connie, how you can have both at the same time. They're not opposites. And I'm so glad that she brought attention to that as well. So hopefully you got a lot out of this. I know this is a difficult topic and it can be hard to navigate jealousy sometimes and we feel bad, but know that you aren't alone and that we're all triggered in different ways. We have past things that have happened to us, past traumas and past experiences that shape us. And so don't hold that against yourself. Just understand it. Allow yourself to feel what's happening in your body at the time and be able to move that through you. Pay attention to your body. Use somatic work to move that through you, as she talked about. And I am such a believer in somatic work and how important it is to get pain and emotions out of your body. And we do that, first of all, by not shaming them and not having guilt about having the emotion to begin with. 
So I love you all. And I'm so happy you were here. I will see you soon. I am going away on vacation next week. So please come back next week for more updates about the new program that's coming out. You don't want to miss it. So very excited. I think it's going to help a lot of people. And I know a lot of people have been asking about how do I make this shift and how do I think differently? So this is how, this is what we're going to be doing. And I cannot wait to give you more information and announce it to the world. Remember, when it comes to sex positivity, authenticity is the key. Go be authentic. Love you. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow me on Instagram at Kareen Bedard Coaching, and you can visit my website at kareenbedard.com. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to give it a like and share it with your friends. I'd be so grateful if you could help by giving us a five-star review on Podchaser or iTunes. Don't forget to subscribe to our mailing list to be kept up to date about upcoming episodes and exciting news. Just visit our website at breakingfreeauthentically.com and scroll down to subscribe. You can also email me anytime. I'd love to hear from you. Send your messages and questions to kareen at kareenbedard.com. Are you a part of my Facebook community yet? Join us in Breaking Free Authentically. It's where you will find this sex-positive relationship community. I'd be thrilled to have you be a part of this community with me. All the links will be in the show notes, so don't forget to check it out. Remember, when it comes to sex positivity, authenticity is the key. Have a great week.